Our scripture reading today comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning and uh, welcome for those of you who are here in person to the Leewood campus. I'm uh, Tom and I serve on the teaching team across Christ Community. Uh, if I've not met you yet, I'd love to meet you after the service. And those of you who are joining us online, we're so grateful you have joined us. So I hear from many of you and uh, grateful for you as well. My mom loved poetry. And in my family, uh, poetry was as common as dinner was woven into the fabric of my youth and my heart. And one of my poets that she introduced me to early on was one of my favorites and continues to be New England poet Robert Frost. One of my favorite poems of Robert Frost is entitled Mending Wall. And you may be familiar with it. If not, here are a few of its brilliant lines. He only says, good fences make good neighbors. Spring is the mischief in me, and I wonder... If I could put a notion in his head, why? Why do they make good neighbors? Isn't it where there are cows, but here there are no cows? Before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out, and to whom I was like to give offense. Something there is in me that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. Good fences make good neighbors. Hmm. Frost is not so sure about that, especially when they become walls, relational obstacles, barriers to human flourishing. Robert Frost is not the only one, because like Robert Frost, Rabbi Paul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, also speaks of fences. He calls them dividing walls in our text, but not only keep us from being good neighbors at times, but keeps us from being the unified, flourishing family of God 
he intends the church to be. So what are those dividing walls? This is the question we want to examine. If you have a Bible with you or close to you, turn to the New Testament book of Ephesians chapter 2. Now last week, Pastor Andrew explored with us the first 10 verses. They are all one unit. And we learned that as individuals, we are saved by grace alone. But now as we continue with Paul's grace-filled train of thought, here in verses 11 through 22, Paul moves from a vertical focus to a horizontal focus to the horizontal dimensions of grace. And we are going to see a riveting truth that emerges, and that is grace not only saves us, as awesome as that is, it makes us a new family. And here in Ephesians 2, Paul gives perhaps his greatest, most compelling, imaginative, soaring vision of the church as a new family. Something surprising the triune God is building for His glory and for all eternity, and yes, something rather messy, yet amazingly beautiful, stunningly diverse. But how does grace accomplish this? Paul will give us in the text with beautiful logical sequence three empowered transformations of grace in making us, His church, a new family. The first one emerges in verses 11 through 13, and that is Christ reconciles us to the cross. Look at me at verses 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, call the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, for us as 21st century readers to get a grasp of the essence of what Paul is saying and the stunning good news of it, we need to get on our sandals walk back to the first century to the Jewish-Gentile world. If you walk back with me in time, it was a world of us and them. It was a religious and cultural apartheid, parting the world in two distinct parts. And this religious and cultural apartheid was actually institutionalized, actually in the Jerusalem temple, that actually had a physical barrier a dividing wall that separated the Gentile world from the Jewish world. And isn't it fascinating that archaeologists have recovered a stone inscription that was attached to that wall warning Gentiles to stay out on the penalty of death. It's right here. Now, since most of us can't read that, let me give you what it means, okay? Here's what it said. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and the enclosure. Now get this. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. That gets your attention. But it also speaks to the first century world. Interestingly enough, if you know your history in 70 AD when Jerusalem fell, one of the first things to go was this partition. (laughs) And it was demolished along with all the temples. But Paul, who is the author of Ephesians, 
already saw it destroyed by Christ at the cross. Paul's language here is a rabbinical one. It reflects the common rabbinical ideas that the law, as good as it is, had become a wall, dividing the Jews by their observance from all of the peoples of the world, which again violated the Abrahamic covenant, by the way. The Jews were hated by the Gentiles for their seeming separatist ideology and air of moral superiority. The Gentiles, often referred to by Hebrew people as the goyim, were hated by the Jews, let me tell you, for what they deemed as their intellectual and moral inferiority and, yes, their uncleanliness. In fact, Jews often contemptuously referred to the Gentiles as those uncircumcised. And that was a derogatory and demeaning nickname. This is what Paul is alluding to here in the text. From cradle to grave, this was the cultural water they swam in. And as it related to the Gentiles, the gospel for the Jewish people, when they came to Messiah, Jesus radically shattered their worldview and reshaped it. One example, you can look later, is in Acts chapter 15, when the apostle Peter, pretty, pretty godly man, right? <clears throat> Had a lot of blind spots here. And he has this vision, right? His world was a worldview that was always kosher. Divided into the non-kosher and kosher. Clean and unclean. And God said, no, I'm going to make everything clean. And Peter was stunned, flabbergasted with his blindness. Imagine also how this paradigm shattering the good news of the gospel for Gentile believers in Christ really was as well. Think about that for a moment. Through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, they are now being warmly and wholly welcomed into God's family along with Jewish believers. Christ, the Messiah, united both. Those who once hated each other with a passion. Jew and Gentile vertically are being reconciled to God and reconciled to one another through the cross. Notice in verse 13 this contrast, but now those who are far off have brought, been brought very near. Paul thinks of two parts. Jews and Gentiles now in Christ. Remember that theme in chapter 1, in Christ? Being united as a whole. Two very diverse people and cultures with an extremely badly wounded history and centuries of hostility. Being recreated as one new person in a brand new family. Let that sink in. And hear me carefully. We often miss this. Paul didn't plant two kinds of churches. A Gentile church over here and a Jewish church over here. That might have been easier. Not in your life. Paul planted one kind of church that included both. How we miss that. And its implications are profound. But as you can imagine, <laughs> living this out wasn't easy. It was messy to the core. And Paul's New Testament letters, if you've read them and if you haven't read them, this bears this out. It's this constant mess of trying to bring these two people together in love. Modeled after the Trinity, reflecting God's diversity and unity as a church, and it's going to need lots of grace, a ton of unconditional love and patience to become this new family. And notice the text. Lavished with his grace, Jesus will be that bridge 
the prince of peace that will break down dividing walls. Now notice, this is the second grace-filled transformation Paul moves to. Not only reconciliation to the cross, but Christ breaks down our dividing walls. Look at me at verses 14 through 16. This is where Paul goes next. For he, Jesus, he himself, is our peace, our shalom, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing walls of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore, or thereby, killing hostility. Don't you love this about the New Testament and Paul particularly? He doesn't sugarcoat the challenges. He doesn't gloss over past wounds, the wounded narratives of Jews and Gentiles, Instead, Paul repeats twice. Here's his repetition on a literary style. Hostilities repeated twice. And it's an intense Greek word. I mean, it's not a skirmish. It's contempt. It's enmity. It's deeply seated over history and time. But Paul does point to Jesus, right? Who is the bridge of peace. He reconciles them to God and to one another. Do not miss that. One body through the cross. Paul wants his readers, whether Jew or Gentile, to grasp that Christ unites them horizontally to one another by breaking down cultural or historical dividing walls. And in verse 18, Paul says both Jew and Gentile believers have the very same Holy Spirit and the very same access to the Father. There are no second-class Christians, no second-class or economy seats in his kingdom. Paul paints a stunningly beautiful picture here. A mosaic in Ephesians chapter 2. And and interesting, Jesus does too in Luke chapter 10. I love the fact that Luke most likely wrote Acts. We're pretty sure that. He was the only, as we know, Gentile writer of the New Testament. And he highlights what? One of Jesus' most famous stories. You all know about it. It's called the story or parable of the Good Samaritan. And it is stunning to me that the Samaritan guy crosses all barriers of enmity. And there was enmity between Jews and Samaritans. Difference of race, religion, ethnic, culturally. He cares for a Jewish man that has been robbed, beaten, and left dead by the road. You remember the story. And what's at the heart of that structure, of that story, is one word that captures a different kind of love. What allowed him to cross those barriers was to see the other through the lens of a family member as a member of his own family. In Jesus' parable, neighborly love now morphs into devoted, secure, empathetic family love. And you know what? The dividing walls tumble down. And let's not forget that the Good Samaritan, a very Jewish Jesus, also, also comes from a very different neighborhood and cultural context than we do, all of us. Yet Jesus reached across all those barriers to us. He broke down the dividing walls and he died for us. So Jesus calls us as his apprentices of a different way of seeing the other as family. The dividing walls 
are broken down, but also to see ourselves differently. Not one of a posture of superiority, which actually is quite a natural thing for fallen creatures like me and you, right? But rather one of an other-centered humility. As Paul is saying, grace transforms us into a brand new family. It reconciles us, breaks down dividing walls, but notice where he goes in a literary crescendo in this text. It gives us a brand new identity. What is striking here in Paul's literary crescendo in verses 17 through 22 is how Paul does something rather unique in all his writings. He stacks three metaphors together, bringing a sense of imagination and meaning and grabbing our hearts, not just our minds. He paints this glorious picture of our new identity in Christ as a family. Let me highlight those three metaphors quickly. You notice how they're stacked in order. First, Paul gives us the metaphor of citizenship. He says in verse 19, you are no longer aliens, but citizens. What is Paul saying, friends? He is saying what Jesus has been saying. Jesus, the king, has come. And his kingdom has been inaugurated. It's a new kingdom. We, the church, are fellow citizens of that kingdom. That is our primary citizenship. With all its privileges, loyalties, and responsibilities of that kingdom. We, the church, have a new king. And we have been given a brand new kingdom agenda that speaks to every nook and cranny of human existence. Second, notice the metaphor on top of that metaphor. Citizenship, now what? Notice at the end of verse 19, Paul gives us the metaphor of a family. And the point here in context is that we all have equal standing before God. There are no second-class family members. The language Paul uses is fascinating here in the original language. It's of a household, which connotes a highly relational reality. Both a people and a place. A family, a home, who are a distinct people where new creation being and new creation belonging come together in community. Now, since the inception of Christ's community, we have had a mission that is embedded in our new identity as the family of God. Our mission is centered in this reality. What is our mission? Our mission is to be a caring family of multiplying disciples influencing our community and world for Jesus Christ. Notice how that is embedded in this text and theology. We are given a new identity. We are fellow citizens of that. And we are a new people. Now let's let that sink in for a moment. Citizens of a kingdom, family members, and notice, there's also a sense of the crescendo, and that's that we are a temple. The dwelling place of God. Look at verses 21 through 22. Using metaphorical building language, echoing Jesus' great words in Matthew, I will build my church, right? Where Jesus is the cornerstone. Paul writes these words. In whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place 
for God by the Spirit. In another letter in the New Testament, Paul will actually say that individually, if you and I have trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Messiah and Savior, the Holy Spirit actually dwells within us. That we are individually temples, but we are collective temples. This has massive implications for our life, for our mission in the world, for life together in Christ as the light of the world. Christ gives us a new identity. We are fellow citizens, members of the same family, and we are as church, a new people, and a place where God himself dwells. Just, just let that sit there. And while we have a new unified identity, Paul is very clear to point out we do not have uniformity. There is a great deal of diversity in this church, of generations, of gifts, of cultural differences, of economic differences that reflect God's beauty, his design for the church. A friend of mine put it this way. Uh, I like how he describes the local church as a, not as a melting pot, right, where distinct differences are eroded away, but rather as a stew pot, where differences are celebrated, Differences that make the church more beautiful in its expression, more effective in its mission. My dear sister Sally, in one of her recent writings, she describes the local church as a tasty delight, like a charcuterie board. And some of us are more nutty than others, but that's another story. <laughs> Grace not only saves us, it makes us a new family. This is what Paul is saying. And Paul gives us these three grace-empowered transformations of what it means to be a new family. Now, if we're transparent, we don't have a lot of really Jew-Gentile hostility of walls today, right? In the church, at least. But there are other dividing walls that I believe we need to pay attention to. For us to be the family of God, the kind of church God desires us to be in the world. So in application this morning, the dividing wall I would like to focus on is our racial dividing walls. Press in a bit to the gospel and racial dividing walls. Now, we all have a race. And we all belong to a particular ethnic group. And we all have a particular story in that regard. And that story often includes walls of division and injustices that we have or are experiencing in our own context. I grew up in Minnesota, and I grew up with lots of Native Americans whose story, if you get to know them, is deeply wounded by historical racial division and deep injustice toward them. I know of Asian Americans who also have shared with me their wounded history, as well as some Hispanic Americans. Now, I don't want to minimize any of these wounded histories or the dividing walls, but I do want us to focus this morning in our application reflection on racial dividing walls and the deeply wounded history of our African-American brothers and sisters. Since Christ's community's inception, 34 years ago, we have been deeply committed to build racial and economic bridges, not walls. One of the great joys of our journey together has been our cherished long-term partnership with Christian Fellowship Baptist Church. We have learned from each other in amazing ways. If you've been around a while, you know the partnerships we have had. We have grown with each other. We've grown together at times as we've served our city together for the glory of Christ. The mission, kingdom mission, is what keeps us together and love of Jesus that keeps us bound together. I asked my dear friend of many, many, many years, Pastor Stan Archie, 
who many of you know, he had one thing he would want to say to us this morning because he loves this place and loves this congregation regarding the gospel and racial walls. And he said this, God has called us, the church, to be the light, to be an alternate community, one that reflects God's character, his desire, and design. There is so much, y'all, we have to learn. So much to unlearn about racial division. Pastor Stan and I will be doing more on this. We're going to do an extensive podcast. I think it will be out in about a month. We'll have more time to have a conversation on the complexities and dynamics of this conversation. So I encourage you to join in when it comes out. But let me start the conversation, okay? I'd like you to listen carefully this morning. I would like to suggest four applicational reflections for all of us to consider. First, together, let's recognize the ongoing effects of such a deeply wounded history. Yes, there are many, many great things about our glorious nation, and we should celebrate them and be very thankful for them, but slavery and Jim Crow laws are one of our nation's darkest marks of willful blindness and egregious injustice. Not just in our past, but the lingering effects continue today in several ways. Let me give you just a couple examples. For example, this is experienced by many of our black brothers and sisters on a very personal basis when driving in certain neighborhoods and are pulled over with no other cause but their skin color. As white-skinned person as I am, that God made me, I have driven through countless neighborhoods in my entire life, and I have never once been stopped for no reasonable cause. Once, never. Also on a more collective basis, for example... Our black black brothers and sisters, because of historical redlining, restrictive covenants, reduced mortgage access, higher interest rates, have been placed at a structural disadvantage in wealth accumulation and standards of living here in Kansas City. Sadly and tragically, when it comes to racial indifference or injustice, predominantly white churches have a mixed history here. We need to be honest. Some Christians and churches have worked to change racial walls of division and injustice, and open doors of opportunity. For example, William Wilberforce and the Clapham Group, out of Christian conviction and love against incredible hatred, did the call to justice as Christians. They worked tirelessly to end the British slave trade. Some abolitionist churches in our own country worked to end slavery and help facilitate the Underground Railroad here in our nation and how we are grateful for them. But many Christians, many churches actually reinforce racial division and injustice under the banner of a corrupt biblical theology by embracing slavery and Jim Crow laws and force fellow African-American Christians to start their own denominations because they were not welcome in our churches. I've had denominational leaders, black leaders, just cry with me on this. There's much more I could say here, both past and present. I simply want to say to myself as a white-skinned person that I have learned more of the horrendous history, spent more time in deepening friendships over several decades with African-American brothers and sisters, and my heart breaks with them. through this. May we with more humility yeah, and empathy grasp the deep wounding that so many of our black brothers and sisters feel so deeply. One of my dear friends 
And he calls me a mentor. I call him a mentor, so I don't know if it's Chris Brooks. Chris is an amazing African-American leader in Detroit. And uh, interesting, he serves a very large congregation that's predominantly white. I asked him this week, he was in Nepal. He texted me back anyway. Um, if he could say one thing to our congregation, what would he say? And here's what he said. I love what he said. He said, I often feel that race relations is like marriage counseling. Often in counseling, you will have one spouse who is willing to admit bad things have happened in the past in marriage, but they don't want to delve deeply into the specifics. They simply want to move forward and carve out a positive future. However, the other spouse will often say that we can't talk about our future until we deal seriously with the past. And Chris says, neither are wrong. Both need to understand and embrace the other's perspective on their relationship. Sometimes you have to heal the past in order to have the future you hope for. Healing of deep wounds, generational, historical, cultural, takes time, y'all. It takes lots of grace from everyone and lots of humility. And we see how true that is in the first century text of the New Testament. Yes, when it comes to racial injustice and dividing walls as a nation, we have made some progress. Thank God for that. But let me ask you the question, is this enough? Personally, I believe we have a good way to go. And I am hopeful mainly not because of some political strategy or power, but because of what I believe God's word calls us, his church, to be in the world. You know, I, the obstacles are great, but I am hopeful that while falling woefully short in the past, the church of the present and the future will more fully live into God's desire and design for his people to truly be the family of God in the world, to reflect that Trinitarian God we love and serve. Secondly, together let's embrace a gracious posture of teachability and discernment. Let's all remember on this side of eternity, we now look through a mirror dimly. Paul says this in the chapter of love, in 1 Corinthians 13. What this means for all of us is a recognition of the blind spots we all have and the cultural location myopia that comes to all of us regardless of our race or ethnicity or generation or economic framework. Friends, there are some things we cannot see we just simply can't see it, even when it's right in front of our eyes. I believe each one of us, regardless of our race or ethnicity, need to assume a more gracious posture of more listening and greater teachability, and yes, discernment. We are to be a people full of both grace and truth. Biblical truth must inform our conversations, our attitudes, and our actions. That includes the biblical truth of common grace. If we are biblical, we not only believe in saving grace, as awesome as that is, but also common grace. That common grace means that every image bearer of God, whether they are followers of Jesus yet or not, right, that we must not only be discerning of ideas or arguments around 
this conversation that are contrary to Scripture. But we must also prayerfully discern what may be right with the ideas or arguments or political views, may I say, espoused by those who may or may not have embraced Jesus as a biblical worldview. I am often reminded by very smart people around me (laughs) that even my most severe critic, and I do have at times severe critics, Tom Nelson does, that in their criticism, rather than me be immediately defensive, I can disagree, sure. But there's a modicum of truth or wisdom I often can find if I'm willing to listen. So let's embrace a posture in common grace of teachability and let's have discernment. Let's listen and be more empathetic to a very wounded history, to racial injustice, to its lingering effects, its complexities, and its present realities. Third, together, let's seek out and cultivate deepening friendships. I love to read books. You know I'm a book nerd. And there are many good books and some not so good books on this topic. But I want to encourage you to read, to grow in understanding. But having said that, what I want most for you and for all of Christ's community's family is growing deep and safe friendships with other followers of Jesus who are ethnically, racially, economically different than we are. The deepening and safe friendships I have with African-American brothers and sisters continue to be some of the most precious friendships in the world to me. Forged over years of honesty, transparency, and love. They have taught me more given me more understanding than all the books I have ever read on this important matter, on racial division and injustice, and I've read a lot. Many of us, and that is true for many African Americans as well, are geographically, culturally, economically, religiously isolated. So let me just encourage you, wherever you are in your journey, to seek out and develop friendships with others who are different than you, who are racially, generationally, ethnically, economically different than you. And last, number four, Together, let's work to lower unjust barriers and open doors of opportunity. I was with an African-American pastoral leader not long ago at a made-to-flourish community, learning community. He said something I thought was absolutely golden. That's what he said to me. He said, Tom, one of the greatest ways you can be my brother in Christ right now is to open doors of access and economic opportunity for so many African-Americans, he said, who do not personally have the same access as many in the majority culture do now. We have written a book called The Economics of Neighborly Love. The subtitle is Investing in Your Community's Compassion and Capacity. If you've not read it, I encourage you a step to go forward here because the purpose of this book is to build a sound exegetical and theological bridge, a biblical theology, to the goodness of an imperfect yet best option we have of a free market economy. Christian love and justice seeks equal opportunities, not equal outcomes. A big part of that is the goodness of not only having compassion, but building capacity for others. That's the subtitle of this book, is investing in your community's compassion and capacity. And a big part of that goodness is building deeper compassion and understanding, but helping build capacity, providing opportunity and access for under-resourced people and the most vulnerable in our city and communities to help them move toward greater flourishing, spiritually first, of course, socially, physically, and economically, is at the heart of our mission. To bring greater shalom to our world. Prophet Micah reminds all of us, as God's people, right? 
that we are called to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. In that spirit, I asked my friend, Pastor John Brooks, who's a remarkable pastoral leader of the largest, we call it African-American church in Kansas City, Macedonia Baptist. Like others, I asked him on a text this week. I said, John, my dear friend, my dear brother in Christ, if you could say something to this congregation that I know you love and respect so deeply in our city, what would you say? And here's what he said. It is not optional. We have a mandate to fix our racial problem. It is tied to everything the church represents to a watching world. See, grace not only saves us, it forms us into a new family. It is a family where the walls of racial, ethnic, generational, economic division and injustice are torn down. It is a family that is a bright, burning light to a dark world. And in his poem, Mending Wall, Robert Frost was onto something really profound. He reminds us in his poetry, before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out. There is something there that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. Walls do not make for flourishing families. Oh Lord, let the walls come down. Let's pray. Father, in your grace and mercy, may all of us have eyes to see and ears to hear as we seek in humility and in prayer and in the power of the Holy Spirit to be your church, to bring your kingdom light to every nook and cranny of our broken world. We pray this in Jesus' name.